1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: Hey, it's Max. Aaron and Evan and I are off this week, so we're putting one of my favorite episodes Back down through the feed, it's a conversation I had with the writer and podcaster, Ashley C. Ford, back in February of 2020. It was one of the last interviews I did before things shut down. And at the time, Ashley was finishing up her first book, a memoir about her childhood, which was defined by the sort of looming presence of her dad, who was incarcerated. The book is called Somebody's Daughter, and it's out now. It came out last month, and it immediately hit the New York Times bestsellers list. It got all kinds of incredible reviews. The book is great. You should go get a copy. I also recommend the audiobook. Ashley reads it herself. And uh, as you'll hear, she just got a fantastic voice. So here's my conversation from February 2020 with Ashley C. Ford. It starts with maybe my favorite first five minutes in the history of the show, Uh enjoy and we'll be back with a new episode next week. All right, I can hear me. Can can you hear me?
3: Yeah, I can hear you, Tilda.
2: We're making a podcast.
3: We're making a podcast.
2: Say something else.
3: Today is my husband's birthday. He turned thirty. Oh shit! He, yeah, he's having a great day so far, playing his Xbox, hanging out with the dog. I was like, "Is it like?" Because I had therapy today and I had other stuff today, and I was like, "Is it okay that like I'm not hanging out with you all day?" He was like, uh, "Yeah." <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm having a great time." <laughs> you talk
2: about your, um, you talk about your marriage in a way that makes me feel like it's such a part of your life, like your your public <laughs> life. Yeah. And uh,
3: listen. Like I, do you know what I do all day? No. What do you do all day? Write and hang out with my husband (laughs) for the most part. (laughs) So I'm talking about my husband all the time because I'm also partly just, you know, I I am very much in love, and it's like to a point that's embarrassing, where like you hear yourself, and then you hear everybody else being like, I don't want to hear that shit. Like you hear both things all the time.
2: Yeah. You're a very publicly in love person is what I'm saying. I am. I'm also very in love. Yes. Just not so publicly.
3: (laughs) That's okay. I think it's totally okay. For me, there was just something about being able to be publicly in love and publicly loved well as a black, queer, not – small (laughs) woman, you know, I've never been the kind of girl who people were like, you know, that's a pretty girl. That's a really beautiful girl. Like, I've never been that girl. It's not because I'm not beautiful. It's just because that's not the kind of thing people would say about me. But my husband tells me I'm beautiful every day and acts like I'm beautiful and acts like I'm beautiful not because of the way I look, but because of the way I am. And... It is really important to me that every person in the world know that that kind of love is out there and it's available because I think a lot of people are at risk of giving up because they think, well, this is good enough. And I was like, what if you could get everything you want? And not everything you want in the form of a perfect person, but everything you want in the form of a person who adores you and will never give up on you.
2: So you are so public about being loved in this way because you are thinking about someone reading that. It's not just like you're just am. walking through the world with like rainbows and, and sunshine. No,
3: no. I'm very aware that the way I talk about being loved and write about being loved for some people will be a reminder that they're worthy of love like that, just as they are, like right now. Not whoever they're going to be in three or five years and not who they were 10 years ago. Right now, totally worthy of the exact same kind of love. Like, to me, I, I wish I knew that. And you know how people always say, and I always have this in my head, and I don't know who originally said the quote because now it's been credited to so many people, but write the book you needed, when you were younger Mm -hmm. or write the story you needed when you were younger or whatever. I never saw women who looked like me being as well-loved as I am. I never, ever, ever saw it. And it is true that, you know, it's hard to be what you can't see. And I used to read these personal blogs and... I used to read these essays that women wrote. You know, one of my favorite pieces of writing in the entire world is Roger Ebert writing to his wife, Chaz, on their anniversary. Yeah, And in that, he says, she is the great fact of my life. Roger Ebert said his wife, a gorgeous, not small, brilliant black woman, was the fact of his life and I wanted to be that for somebody not everything not somebody they lived for but at the end of their life I want to be that period I want to be a statement I want to be a great fact in their life It's my favorite like five minutes of the start of the podcast okay. <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Uh,
2: Well, I guess I should do the formality (laughs) of, like, uh, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're definitely just keeping all of that. (laughs) How conscious is that for you? Like, I I mean, I guess very, but thinking about yourself as a younger person
3: Mm. and,
2: and that audience for your work now.
3: I'm extremely conscious of that. I think because as a kid, the thing I felt most acutely was dismissed or silenced. And... By whom? I, oh. <laughs> everybody around me, for the most part, my, my mother, my grandmother, teachers, even classmates, friends, everybody I felt like at some point felt like they didn't want to hear anything else from me and were very quick to shut me down. This is in Fort Wayne? Oh, yeah, this is in Fort Wayne, Indiana, baby. What were you like? I was, I guess what I eventually learned to call precocious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I was a kid who was reading Romeo and Juliet in the third grade. And having my teacher take away my book because she thought I was pretending to read instead of actually reading. And I had been reading that book so much (laughs) and for so long, and I was so indignant because I was always afraid. I didn't really grow up in a house where um, when I got to a certain age where there were books for me in the house. Um, My mom didn't buy a lot of books past, like, the board books of childhood. Like, once we got into, like, the middle grade ages or chapter book ages, which I got into really quickly, um, she was pretty much like, I'm not spending all my money on books because I ain't got no money in the first place. (laughs) And so I would, in the summer times, uh, go to the library. And they had a summer reading program where if you read so many pages or so many hours, then you could earn a book. And I would just blow through that summer (laughs) reading program, and I would be in that book box getting the best picks because I was always done first, you know what I mean? And so I had books, but they could—I was also the oldest of four kids. It's like my books could disappear. (laughs) My books could get drawn in. If my book got left somewhere, it would not be replaced. And I loved Romeo and Juliet so much that in my school notebooks, I would write lines from Romeo and Juliet. I would hold the book open and I would write the lines just in case I ever lost the book so that I would be able to at least keep those parts. And I was pretty sure I could remember the rest. So I got into it with my teachers a lot. Like I was definitely pretty much from like... Third grade on. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much from third grade on. um, I either had relationships with my teachers that were really close and really, like, intense and they were, like, really on my side. Or I had relationships with teachers that were just purely combative. And I would go toe to toe.
2: And did any of those teachers provide, like, a model or some context
3: for you? Yes, some of them did. Once I got to middle school... I had some amazing, amazing teachers. In seventh grade, which was really a a turning point for me in my mindset as a young person, uh, (laughs) I had two things happen that were helpful in shifting that mindset because I had come to a place where I was pretty sure that who I was Uh, was not going to (laughs) work out. Um, I was getting in trouble all the time. I was becoming like a kid who at my last school had been in gifted programs. And now I was a student who was constantly in in in-school restriction and things like that. And there were some things that happened my seventh grade year that really helped me make a good shift away from the path I was sort of heading down. One of those things was my teacher, Mrs. McKenna, uh, having the class read the book, The Giver. And in the book, the kid, the protagonist, Jonas, lives in this place that is like incredibly ordered and constructed. And kids find out on their 13th birthday what they're going to train for and become for the rest of their lives. Like they could be anything from like working in the birthing center, which means being essentially a baby factory, Or you could become a judge. You could become, like, a construction worker. Like, all these things that are very practical for the society. There is no color in this society. Like, literally everything's in black and white. And it's about the fact that this kid essentially finds himself with this craving. He wants things like love and the color red. (laughs) And friendship and he feels things suddenly like sadness and bravery and lust and reading this book for the first time, I felt like I had so many more choices in my life than I originally thought I had. That was really, I think, my first realization that I did not just have to react to the world, that I could be intentional in the world and just curious about what came back to me.
2: Is everything you're saying right now, is that like stuff you realized in hindsight? Or is that like actually something that's (laughs) happening in the the moment?
3: No, I think that's probably in hindsight. In the moment, I felt the shift. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that I could have articulated it, obviously, that way. I don't think I could have articulated it at all. I just knew after finishing that book that I wanted to try being myself. And part of that ended up being um, joining marching band, which was a massive shift in my life. What instrument did you play? I was, well, in marching band, I was in the color guard. So flags, sabers, rifles, spinning, tossing, catching, dancing. All of that. For the um, people listening, you should, you should know that Ashley's just doing all the hand motions right <laughs> I can't help it. Like, as soon as I start talking about Color Guard, I'm not kidding. It's like I just go into drop spins, and I don't—that'll probably be for the rest of my life. Um, and where does writing show up? Writing shows up, in a way, through marching band. Like, that's where writing in community comes, because that's when I met— friends who secretly wrote poems and things like that and then we started to share those things writing uh, as a profession my god doesn't come until college i wouldn't even let myself think about it really but you were writing then oh yeah what what kind of stuff love poems <laughs> mostly mostly love poems songs i i really wanted to In a way that has really songs. changed no it has not <laughs> It is not. Love has been, you know, an evolving concept for me, but an ever-present one in the forefront of my mind.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening.
2: I read some interviews and it sounds like uh, you got to college and you started taking some classes mm-hmm. and getting more serious about it. When you started writing those classes and, and I feel like you had like a couple pieces picked up here and there on the Internet, you were very like uh, on the Internet person. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what were your ambitions then?
3: OK, I will say this. By the time I actually changed my major to English, I was really just trying to graduate. (laughs) I'm not lying. I had tried so many other majors. English was my sixth or seventh major change. (laughs) (laughs) That's a punch. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not kidding. It was my sixth or seventh major change. I want it so hard to be this very practical person who was going to get into an industry that got her a job where she made at, like, could make up to $50,000 a year and could be very stable. Like, that's what I wanted, a like job accounting. with health insurance. I mean, I was never going to do accounting because I was already atrocious at math. So I was like, okay, I like the math jobs, which would have been the ones that I probably would have gone after had I been good at math, <laughs> I was automatically out for the count. The only time math ever worked for me was when it was applied. So, like, I loved chemistry. Yeah. But even then, I would psych myself out. Like, I didn't have this confidence that I thought I was supposed to have. It was wild to me to get to college and find out that there were kids who had been working in spaces and had access to educational resources that I thought only showed up on TV. And I was in class with those kids, and I was just like, yeah, I can't be in here. Like, I can't be trying to be a chemist out here (laughs) like with people who have lives like these. Are you kidding me? And so I tried a bunch of other things that I thought would get me a guaranteed job somewhere or would at least motivate me enough not to fall asleep in class. And that just didn't happen until I got to English.
2: <laughs> All right. So then you landed there. Yeah. And the goal is just to like find some way to finish. How do you even. Yes. How do you even finish? Like, did you finish college in four years? No. We switched majors seven times. So, I how graduated, could you possibly
3: do that? Listen to me, Max. I graduated from Ball State University in December of 2018. When did you start? August. 2005. <laughs> so, so a clean
2: 13 years. A clean, then.
3: a smooth 13 years. <laughs> I mean, there was some obviously some breaks in there, um, but yeah, I graduated December 2018. I gave the commencement speech. I watched that speech. Did you? Yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be prepared. Oh yeah, no. I knew that you were in college
2: for a long time. I, I did not do the math that it was 13 years. 13 though.
3: years. Thirteen That's years. wild. Yeah.
2: So you were here. And you were Ashley C. Ford, <laughs> but you had, not, you had graduated from college. Yeah, yes like, and no. Like capital A, C and F. Ashley C. Yeah. Ford. Yeah. Which
3: is so, yeah, I guess, yes. But no, I had not graduated from college. Did that like, hang over you? Yes, absolutely. I was one class away and I couldn't afford it. I just couldn't afford it. And I was like, I can't stay here. I can't stay here another semester. I can't not go find a job. I can't do this. I'm one class away, but I can't. And so I walked away for years and years and years, and it hung over my head. Somebody told me one time that eventually my credits would just start to disappear. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then I had it in my head, like there would be nights I'm Max, I shit you not, there would be nights when I would have this nightmare about my transcript. And you know how your transcript comes out in like that old type that's like that Betamax type. And it was, yeah, it was like, like a, the perforated edges. The perforated edges and yeah. stuff. And I just had this dream that like my credits were like these dots and that this Pac-Man was going and eating <laughs> my credits. It's so stressful. And that I was trying to finish a test before the Pac-Man ate all my credits. And I would have that stress dream. Like I was messed up. I was messed. But why didn't
2: you up. just finish when you were like uh, you're writing and having full time jobs and stuff? They just like take one night class and finish it
3: up. In a lot of cases, still couldn't afford it. <laughs> First of all, um, you know the way my life is. It's funny because I make a lot of money, but I am responsible financially. For more than I think certain people are who are making the same amount of money. How much money do you make? Oh, let me see. In two, I can tell you about 2018. I can't tell you about 2019 yet because I don't really know. But in 2018, I made, I think, a little over $300,000.
2: What's the breakdown?
3: With like what?
2: What's writing? What's book advance? What's like
3: podcast hosting? How do how do you make three hundred grand? Even though I consider myself mostly a writer, I think in two thousand eighteen, my breakdown probably comes with one third being speaking engagements, like traveling and speaking places, hosting things for people, and. Podcasting then probably made up another 15%. And then writing, including my book Advance... Because I'm trying to think about my book advance. Is this about you not being able to do the math? Or do you not remember what your book advance was for? This is definitely about me not being able to do the math. (laughs) I promise you it's about me not being able to do the math. Keep going. Because I'm thinking about it right now. And I'm like, Ashley, there's no way. Like I'm seeing the numbers Mm -hmm. in my head. And they won't go in the right place. Okay. With my book advance and the few, I think I only took a few writing assignments that year. I think I took two or three in all of 2018, that actually probably makes up a little more than half. Mm -hmm. A little more than half. Okay. We've had
2: like almost 400 people come on the show. Yeah. And money is oftentimes the most difficult and uncomfortable thing for people to talk
3: about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: We ask all the time and sometimes the answers are so evasive and boring even though we keep asking over and over again uh-huh. or people just refuse to talk about it that we cut it out of the show. Right. Cuz there's just like it reveals nothing. People right. say nothing. Why were you so comfortable just now <laughs> when I asked you how much money you made?
3: Because I- Okay. well, first of all, let me say I understand why people would be uncomfortable because you don't really know how people are going to react to you talking about money in a real way. Because there are a few things that will happen. Some people will hear that number and they'll think that I don't make enough money and that I should be making more. And like, Ashley, like I I can think of five million ways you could triple your profits. Come on. And then there are people who will think that's way too much money for what she does. I don't make that much, and I know I'm doing better stuff than what she does, right? And then there are people who just don't give a shit, but they're interested and want to know. I find most people fall into that middle category. So I can make decisions about what I do and don't say based off the people at those extreme ends. Or I can have a real conversation with the people who, for the most part, don't care how much I make, but they're interested and they want to know. And they want to know in a lot of cases because maybe they're interested in doing what I do and they want to know what's possible. Mm-hmm. Or they want to know that maybe that's not enough money for them and that doesn't work for them. You know, maybe they're like, "Nah, I'm a half a million a year kind of bitch. Can't. Can't be doing this <laughs> three hundred thousand stuff. I don't I mean, really care.
2: I don't want to go out on a limb, but I I feel like the listeners, of the long form podcast, <laughs> might not be might not be. that can't for the most part. <laughs>
3: right. I mean, right. I think
2: you know it's a really consistent piece of feedback we get. Right? People are interested in those numbers uh, because I do think they want to know what's possible. Yes. Slash, how people can afford to just write if the
3: money isn't there. Plus, rich people talk to rich people about money. But when I was living in abject poverty, which wasn't that long ago. um, When was it? Oh, man. I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to think of when I stopped worrying about buying groceries. The last time I worried about buying groceries was 2015.
2: Does 300 grand feel like a ton of money?
3: Yes. And no. But. Yes, it still does. Like, it's like saying that amount automatically makes me scared because it's like, you know, are people going to think I'm bragging? And then the other part of me has to be like, pitch $300,000 in New York. Like, <laughs> I-, I think they'll survive it. I think they'll be okay hearing that you made $300,000 in 2018 and that a- and that more than half of that was your book advance. I'm like, yeah, I think that'll be okay. I think they'll survive. <laughs> you know? It's, it's, I understand why it's a tough conversation. I understand why it's hard for people to talk about it, but rich people are talking about it. They talk about money with each other all the time. They don't want us talking about money with each other because then we start to put two and two together and figure out that something in the milk ain't clean. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you know, I think I was really lucky. Because my inclination was to stay broke. I thought I would just be broke forever and I was like, Well, <laughs> like I really was. I thought I was going to be broke forever. And I was resigned to it because I didn't really know anybody who wasn't broke anyway. Like, not like that. You know, how did it change? How did which thing change? My mindset or not being broke? Well, I guess if there's a gap between those two, I'm interested in the gap. There's a gap. When I came to New York and I was working full-time at BuzzFeed, I pretty quickly started getting opportunities to come speak places or be... A guest on somebody's show, you know, like I used to do HuffPost Live a lot, which was so fun. And when Janet Mock had her show at MSNBC, so popular, I used to go on there and do that. And it was so fun. Like, I was having a blast. And then people started inviting me places to speak. And I didn't know what I should ask for. They would ask me about my rates and I would be like, my rates? Like, you want me to write something too? Like, I was confused. Like... You're inviting me to speak. Like, what? What happens? Like, I didn't know they were going to pay me, and I had this amazing mentor in the form of Roxanne Gay, who I could text and say, "Hey, this place has invited me to speak at this thing." And I don't know if you've ever spoken to Roxanne. Like, I'm trying to. I don't think she's been. She on hasn't the podcast. been on the show. I've
2: emailed with her a little bit.
3: Yeah. Okay. Because I was like, I don't think she's been on. The- I know everything she does, but she should come on the show. She should come on the show, but. I would, you know, send a text to Roxanne and ask her, you know, should I do this or how much should I ask for or whatever? And like I said, like, Roxanne is very direct. And so she would just send me a text back and be like, don't do it for less than this. And I would be like, what? (laughs) Like, that sounds ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, they're going to take it away. Like, that was it. And she was like, if they take it away, then it wasn't yours because they weren't going to pay you what you were worth. And I would be like, oh, I don't know. You know what I mean? and But I would try. I just started asking. And when I started asking, I started getting. I am still at a place where when somebody asks me about my rates, like, I'm like, talk to my agent. Because you can't ask me. Because I'm still in my mind, like a 14-year-old hustler who went around the cafeteria asking everybody for a dollar for lunch until she had about 20. And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's who I am in my head. So I'm like, yo, I can break you off for about $500. I could be there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's how I feel inside. <laughs> but that's not me owning my worth. And then that also means that the people who come up behind me, are then held to a different standard for what they should be willing to accept.
2: Wait, so what's your rate now?
3: I mean, it depends. What, what <laughs> you what you want me to do? Where you want me to go? How long you want me to stay there? You talking about a workshop or a talk? Mostly, I just really appreciate you doing this interview for free. <laughs> Well, I like you. (laughs) I also, that's a problem, too, is that I like too many people. And when I like people, I I feel weird charging them for stuff. And it took me a while to realize that, like, no, people want to support you. (laughs) like, And they want to support you financially. They want to support you in all of these ways. like, And so it's good to allow people to do that. But it's still a little thing for me. Like, I feel like even now there have been times when... My agent has been like, you know, oh, they offered this much, but I'm going to go back and ask them for more. And I've been like, wait, <laughs> I really like these guys. And I know they don't have a lot of money. <laughs> like, I can do this. Like, I, this is fine. I can make this work. Because it's just, I don't know, it's, there's still too much of a former poor kid in me to take advantage of people, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess.
2: Do you think that'll change?
3: I hope not. I'm doing pretty well without taking advantage of anybody. So I figure let's ride this train till the wheels fall off. You know what I mean? Like I don't... (sighs) The bitterness, the taste it leaves in your mouth when you screw some... Like I can't even get to that point. It feels so opposite of what I want to put in the world and what I want to get back. What... um. What do you want to put in the world and what do you want to get back? It's not, you know, I tell people all the time that I want to put more love into the world. But I hardly ever get the chance to tell people what I believe love is. Because we all kind of think that we have this shared definition of love and we don't. Like we couldn't have a shared definition of love because love is informed by all the experiences you've had up until the point that you meet another person. Every time you meet another person, your definition of love as you have experienced it has altered every single time. So we have these different definitions of love. And we come together and we talk about love and we get upset when people don't love us the way we want or the way we think we want. But we've never told them what love means to us. We've never, ever explained that this is what love looks like for me. When I talk about love, this is what I'm talking about. Right?
2: So what's your definition?
3: My definition of love is what liberates us in connection with each other and how we hold each other accountable within that liberation. I need some help. That's okay. I think about it like this. There's like In my head, when I think about love, right, there's an amalgam of quotes and little moments between me and other people and, you know, definitions and words and all those things, right? Like some people, when they think about love, what they're actually thinking about to me is like limerence, right? Limerence. Is more like obsession, (laughs) and it's like the obsession, you know, of the object. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's unrequited, sometimes it's, you know, um, shared. But in either event, it's just it's kind of obsession. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet love, right? Maya Angelou, Doctor Maya Angelou, has said that love liberates. It does not bind. Love does not hold you closer because it fears you going away. Love tells you to fly and is there when you return. I realized that I was in love with Kelly, like in love, because he made me want to be more of myself He made me want to look at all the parts that I generally don't let out into the world or that I'm really vulnerable about or scared of and I don't want anybody to see. And he held those parts of me like something beautiful and strong and precious in a way that makes me less scared to shine a light on them. I never wrote about love publicly <laughs> before Kelly. <laughs> never
2: I think I understand that. I understand how it relates to Kelly. Kelly's your husband, who we were talking about at the
3: beginning. yeah, do you get how it relates even between me and you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no i uh, I was going to go in a different direction, but now I'm interested in that
3: <laughs> okay. Well, let me put it like this, right? I am fully aware that every emotion I experience, my biggest, best, brightest joys, and my lowest, darkest, deepest pain, I am aware that you are as capable of having and expressing All of those emotions as I am. And I am also aware that the way you choose to express those emotions, the emotions that you feel most free to express, are shaped by the world you live in, the world we share, by the family you grew up in, by the family you have now. All of those things are informing who you are and what you decide to do at any given moment. My love for you allows me to hold you in your full humanity and to accept that whatever you put out into the world is what you feel safe to put out into the world. And if I feel some way about it, I can ask you, I can soothe you or myself, or I can separate. And decide that that's better for right now, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, sometimes people go a little too far. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where that hard separation often comes in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like it's like people say, you know, to I don't have to love you across the table from you. I can love you from over there. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: the thing I was going to ask you about was how that definition that you have.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Really, see your dad mm like how how the way that you grew up in your relationship with your dad might might have created that definition for you
3: it absolutely did, you know when you get to well, first of all, let me say you know my my story with my dad is that when i before I was a year old, probably before I was a half a year old, I believe, my dad was tried and convicted of rape and sent to prison. My mom very suddenly became the single parent of two kids under two after having been married. And My dad was... I felt like I was learning about God the same way I was learning about my dad. There was some guy, right, out there who was... Watching me all the time and trying to make sure I was being good and he could see you, but you couldn't see him, all this stuff. And then it was the same story with my dad. There's this guy out there and he loves you and he's met you, but you haven't met him, you know. And so I learned how to love my dad like a God. Something separate from me, but part of me and important to impress. Hmm. I wanted to impress my dad even though I didn't know him. I wanted him to think that there was a reason to get to the other end of his sentence if there was an end to his sentence because we also didn't know. You know? Growing up, I would ask a lot when my dad was coming home and the answer was always either I don't know or stop talking to me about it. And so I had no idea what my dad's sentence was or how long he would be away or, you know, he could be away for the rest of his life, the rest of my life. And so it was this very strange love that I had, you know, there's the Bible, <laughs> and you read the Bible, right? It's like it's supposed to be this letter, like this book, that, like this instruction manual that God left behind. And I had letters. My dad wrote me these letters my whole life. And he had this beautiful penmanship, and his letters were always just like, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. You're the best girl in the world. He called me his favorite girl. My dad's also an artist, and so he would draw me these cards. And he would send me these cards with my own face on them, right? And it was amazing, and it was beautiful, and it was delightful. And then I turned 13, and I was sexually assaulted by my boyfriend. And then I turned 14, and then my grandma told me that my dad was in prison for rape. And I hadn't known that up until that point. And so I was having this big crisis with God because of what had happened to me. And then it just doubled into a crisis with my other God, who did the thing I thought was most heinous in the world.
2: You've told that story. Uh, I've heard you tell it on podcasts, and you've written about it, mm-hmm. and you're working on a book about am. it now. Mm-hmm. To what degree has, like, creating art out of that experience, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It's, like, it's sort of cathartic, but I think I'm also just wondering, like, how much the writing has allowed you to process it? And then maybe a part of that question is also just, like, how much has all this work you've done about your dad been for you, and how much has it been for that audience you were talking about at the beginning?
3: Well, first... This book has forced me to deal with things on a deeper level than I thought I had dealt with them. And we should just
2: say the book is not
3: out yet. The book is not out. The book will hopefully be out spring 2021. That's not official, but it is – that's the goal. So uh, just root for me. Um, Working on this book has really forced me uh, back into therapy, (laughs) first of all. It really forced me to learn how to sit with my feelings and not just distract myself from them or gloss over them. Because the story in a lot of cases is in the feelings. Like it's in that moment. It's in being able to describe that feeling in a real way and being able to kind of give that feeling to the story And I (laughs) was having such a hard time (laughs) because every time I sat down to write, I would get so agitated, I would just get up and do something else. And the only way I was able to write certain parts of the book was in, like, these weird little fits and spurts, like, suddenly on my phone on in the subway or on an airplane all of a sudden, like, but right before we got off the airplane so that I didn't have to sit with it and think about it. It's like I had to write about these things or give myself pieces of these things in these distracted moments, like in the blur, instead of looking at them head on. And I realized that I did not want to put this book in the world without being able to face those things head on on the page. I didn't want to find myself in a situation where, you know, I'm sitting in an interview and somebody starts to talk to me about a certain part of my book and I can't talk about it. Or like it takes me to a place where not just where I'm emotional, but where I break down. I don't mind getting emotional, but I don't want to break down. And I was breaking down writing this book and writing about these things. You know, I just didn't want to do that to myself. And a great way to not do that to yourself is to just go talk to somebody. A professional (laughs) who can really help you dig through that stuff and help you come to conclusions that help you not just creatively, but also emotionally for the rest of your life. There are things that have really, really assisted me in getting this book written. But there are so many things that have happened in the course of writing this book that will stay with me much much longer.
2: What's an example of that? What are you thinking of when you say
3: that? When I say that, one of the things that I'm definitely thinking of is the <laughs> this phrase that I say all the time, but that my therapist said to me and that has been so helpful to me, which is just that feelings aren't facts. That you can feel like the scum of the earth. You can feel not good enough. You can feel bad you can feel incompetent you can feel like a bitch you can feel like a jerk like you can feel like all of that stuff and that just doesn't make it a fact feelings are powerful feelings do change things feelings can move a nation feelings can start a revolution but feelings don't ever become facts and shared opinions don't become truths And that just flipped something for me. When I realized that feeling bad didn't make me bad. And that feeling tired, it's like it's okay to just be human. And you know what makes it most okay? Everybody else is just human too.
2: It's interesting that, uh, I don't know what quote to make of this, but it's interesting that you started this conversation by talking about how
3: Uh, You want to be a fact. Yeah. And then what you took away from the book is that feelings aren't facts. Feelings aren't facts. They're not. You know, I do. I do want to be the fact of my husband's life. But facts are about presence. Facts is about showing up. I want my husband at the end of our lives to be able to be like, man, fuck that woman showed up. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Like, I want him to be like, she showed up. Like, she... Didn't hide from me. She did not hide from me. Like, I want that bad. But that didn't have anything to do with how I feel. Because you got to show up sometimes even when you don't feel like it.
2: So this book? Mm-hmm. You done with the book?
3: No. No. Not at all. mm Who's it for? This book is for... This book is for me
2: in a way that's different than the things you've been writing for the last couple of years absolutely how so
3: in order to write this book even as I keep in mind the greater goals of my career what I had to do to write this book required me to not be in a place where I was writing it for anybody else I thought that that was going to be the key. That's what people say, you know, like, write for some – pick a person or pick, like, in a, a group, even if it's a Well, you're kind of rolling person. your eyes when you
2: say that, but I feel like that's what you were saying before is that, like, you're thinking about people who didn't have – you're thinking about yourself when yeah. you were younger and didn't have models and – yeah. Uh, so like you, you do do that in absolutely. other aspects of your writing.
3: Absolutely, I think I absolutely do that in my online writing, especially like yeah, social media and stuff like that. And that has been for me, I feel like a little bit of a crutch in my writing, because what I'm not understanding or what I wasn't understanding before was that writing about my humanity is writing about humanity. Like, I don't have to write anything for somebody else. If I write it for me, I'm writing it for everybody, essentially. Because I really want it to be that, like, this life that I've had up until, you know, the point that it ends in the book, not like my life ends, but I stop writing about it, I really want that to sound and read Like, all of the things that could happen in any life. Because I honestly think anything that could happen to me could happen to anybody. Like, really. I honestly do. And I know people say that and everybody's like, yeah, okay, but you have, like, the this and the that. I don't have nothing. (laughs) Take it from me because I ain't got shit. I really don't. I got a husband. I got a dog. I got a, you know, I got a pretty cool family. And I've got some dope friends. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I have. And it's not that, oh, you could get this much money that way, or you could blah, blah, blah. It's that big lives, what we think of as big lives, are just enhanced ordinary lives. (laughs) Like, they really are. Do
2: you think you have a big life?
3: I I think it looks like I have a big life. I think I have a full life. I really do. I love my life. I love my life. There are things I want and there are things I'd like to do. You know, still want to ride a horse. That hasn't happened. But I love my life. I really do. But I think sometimes outside looking in, there's this perception. Because I had this perception. That you can walk into a certain room and people will just know you don't belong there. And I think people look at my life through like these little lenses and on these screens and they're like, wow, Ashley probably walks into a room and doesn't feel like that. Or Ashley probably walks into a room and it's just, you know, owns it or she blah, blah, blah or whatever. And I'm like, no, I walk into almost every room especially like in groups like awards like you know like all that stuff you walk into that stuff it's not fun it's not fun and it doesn't feel like you're on top of the world it often feels like you're on the bottom of somebody's shoe like quite often who wants to walk around having somebody look down at your name tag to see if they recognize your name before they decide whether or not they continue talking to you I just think that people see life a certain way and then there's the way life is and it's you'll never really be able to let somebody into your full life and give them like a full view of what that's like but there's so many interesting things about lives that we think of at times as small or inconsequential I feel like that's where so many of the most fascinating human stories are I wish we would tell more of them. Mm. And I, I think sometimes that's going to take people like me, a, a Hoosier who decides to write a memoir, even at 30, you know, <laughs> even though everybody in Indiana is mostly like, oh, uh, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know what I mean? I grew up in like the center of who do you think you are. And I don't care. You got to write your stories. Like, you got to tell them as little as they are and as human as they are and as specific as they are. I wish
2: you could come here every Monday afternoon.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I
2: would. I uh, That's the just problem. having a conversation about the meaning of life on a Monday afternoon at
3: 3.30 is, like, um, oh, much man. better than what I'm normally doing. See, this is the problem. This is why I grew up thinking people didn't like me because they would be like, oh, hey, how's your day? And I would be like, have you... Ever thought about what the transition from life to death will feel like <laughs> physically? And they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna stand over here now."
2: <laughs> no, I like those conversations too. I um, I want to ask you about a couple more things uh, that are about like uh, your writing career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back before we talked, right, and started looking through the last like I don't know six years or mm-hmm. so. Um, and you've had a bunch of jobs. <laughs>
3: Sorry, I have yes.
2: You've um, you've played many <laughs> roles in the New York media ecosystem. I have. You were on staff at multiple places, mm-hmm. Refinery and BuzzFeed. You've written for like L and Self and all of these places. You've hosted a bunch of different podcasts, mm-hmm. like for BuzzFeed and Audible and Mastercard and like. There's <laughs> all of these different. I feel like there's. You've played, like, so many different roles. You've had so many different jobs. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I was wondering, uh, looking at that, was um, why why don't you stay in jobs?
3: <laughs> I'm sorry. I, my laugh is so loud. Um, I have a really hard time with 9-to-5s specifically because <laughs> I am just – I'm not the kind of person who you can ask to come sit in a chair for eight hours a day and just expect that I'm going to be in that chair all day or that I should be in that chair all day. I like getting things done the way I like getting them done, (laughs) Um, which is part of it. I don't do well with office politics because – I don't ever have any desire to be promoted. If you hire me for a job, that's the job I want to do. So I'm not trying to impress you so I can get to, like, the next job or the other job. I'm like, no, I want to do this job. Like, just let me do this job. But people always want to, like, make you do other stuff or they want to, like... It's like, just let me do my job. Just let me do the job you hired me for. And I understand being flexible, right? Because I can do all kinds of things. So, yeah, I'm happy to be flexible. And I'll always do somebody a favor because I like being useful. I'm a Capricorn. But I don't have the patience for things like uh, professional deference. Like, I remember being at jobs where, like, the CEO would come in. And everybody, oh, I don't you know the CEO's in. And I'm like, who... He, he don't know who we are. He should know who we are. <laughs> like, what's the problem? Like, oh, don't walk by like walking past the office and not like speaking to the people who are like executives and stuff. And I would be like, what's up, man? What you doing? You know what I mean? Because I just, I don't like those lines. I don't like them at all. So I don't do well in those environments. I also like to do a lot of different things. Yeah. I like to do so many different things. Well, this
2: things. gets to the second part of my question. The first part was like, is there, is there some cataclysmic disconnect between you and, and jobs? And then the second part was, um, what have you been looking for?
3: Hmm. I like projects where I get to be deeply curious in the subject matter. And I feel like whatever information I am gathering is in some way useful. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be useful, like, you know, I do like a wilderness survival podcast where like, people then take it into the wild and survive. Like, I don't necessarily know that that's what I'm talking about. But more so like, I wanna do things that tell awesome stories, make people feel something, and satisfy my own curiosity. If it can do that, I can do that for a really long time, like a really, really long time. I'm just traditionally not great at constantly doing what somebody else wants me to do. I'm just going to be honest. I got a little bit of an anti-authoritarian streak But that mostly comes from feeling like people who didn't care about me had authority over me. When I feel like I'm on a team where we all care and we're in this, you know, and we're doing it together, I could be on that team. I could be part of that team for years. What – so you're going to finish this book? I'm going to finish this book. You're going to turn it in? I'm going to turn it in. It's going to be done. It's going to be done.
2: You will have uh, learned and internalized that feelings are not facts. I will. And then what happens? Like what do you what do you uh, like what do you what are you gonna do with the rest of your life?
3: I want to do so many things, Max. I am unabashedly unashamed about all the ambitions I have for my life. I want to write books forever. I want to eventually make movies. My dream is to be a person who adapts short stories and novels for film. Like that is my. Dream. I would love to do that. But, you know, until then, I'm going to keep doing things that feel fun. Because that's really working out for me so far. And I didn't think, like, I I mean, I definitely grew up in a house where it was like, you better get a job, you know, (laughs) in a certain sense. Like, you're going to have to take care of yourself. And, you know, I, I was so serious from such a young age about wanting to be able to be independent, to take care of myself, to make enough money, to do this, to do that. And I made some money. And I've been close to people who make a lot more money than I make. And the lesson that keeps coming back to me over and over and over is that if you let yourself have fun, it's going to work out. If you do things that mean something to you and you get to have fun while you're doing them, it's all going to work out. And until that turns out not to be true, I'm just going to keep following that path.
2: I feel like um, there have been like uh, 15 different things you said <laughs> that I could have just been like, it's a pretty good ending. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's a pretty good ending. Thank you. Ashley, thank you.
3: Max, thank you so much for having me.
2: listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our sponsor is MailChimp. Thanks to them. And thanks to Ashley C. Ford for that conversation back in February of 2020. Her book is out now. It's called Somebody's Daughter. Go get a copy. We'll be back with a new episode next week.